Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today, we're going back into the Analects by Confucius, and we're going to start with book five. I know we didn't quite finish up with um, book four, but we're going to move ahead to book five uh, because I have quite a few I want to cover today. Uh, book five, you start to get a discussion about um, what is good, and, and by good, he means all of that that goes with that. Virtuous, good, um, you know, just all around the perfect person. Um, and they're trying to figure out, is this person qualify as that? Does that person qualify as that? And, you know, the, the answer keeps coming back, I don't know if he is or not. Um, so in the first uh, part, the uh, student, uh, Zhang Gong, says, what do you think of me? The master replied, you are a vessel. What sort of vessel? A precious ritual vessel. In other words, he is um, he, he's sort of insulting him. He's he's giving a backhanded compliment. He's saying you're you know kind of shiny and uh, surface like you have a lot of value, but you're empty. You're you're just something that something of value should be placed inside of. And you know this is something that I don't think his student quite catches on. So his students start to ask, you know, about, well, who is good? Uh, Meng Wubu asked, is uh, Zulu good? The master replied, I do not know. Meng Wubu repeated the question. The master said, in a state of 1,000 chariots, Zulu would be employed to organize the collection of military taxes, but I don't know whether he is good. Um, and what he's saying is, yes, he has this really good trade, but Good is something that goes beyond one trait. You know, yes, he would be very organized. Yes, he would be able to, um, you know, do a good job in this position. But is he a good person? Who knows? There's, and he's starting to draw the difference between somebody being competent at something and somebody being good. It's a different thing that he's going after. And in a lot of ways, this is very similar to, you know, things that uh, Plato is talking about in the Republic much later on. You know, trying to find out who is the virtuous, uh, who's the just. And, you know, Plato, you know, keeps digging. This question has to go deeper. You can't just look at the surface of things. And this is kind of where you get the comparison with that first passage where he, you know, calls his student a, a precious vessel. You know, yes, it may look like it has a great deal of value. You know, it may be covered in jewels. It may be glittery, but that doesn't mean... The substance underneath is good. And that's really what Confucius is trying to get at with his students. Um, the master asked uh, Xingong, who is better, you or Han Hui? Uh, Xingong answered, how do I, dare I even think of comparing myself to Hui? Hui learns one thing and thereby understands ten. I learn one thing and thereby understand two. The master said, no, you are not as good as Hui. Neither of us is as good as way. Now, one of the things with Confucius is Confucius throughout this um, doesn't come across as he's the guy that knows everything. He's an innovator. He's, you know, the smartest guy around. He sees his own limitations. And, you know, in seeing your own limitations, this is where you can actually start to learn and grow. You know, if you don't think of yourself as having limitations, if you don't think of yourself as being limited, if you see yourself as perfect, you will not have the opportunity to learn and grow. You will continue to, you know, 
basically have blinders on and not see things when they are placed before you. Uh, Zaiwo was, uh, was sleeping during the daytime. The master said, Rotten wood cannot be carved, and a wall of dung cannot be plastered. As for Zaiwo, uh, what would be the use of reprimanding him? In other words, he has one of his students who is lazy, and he says, you know, what would be the point of correcting him? Because this is his nature. Um, so the master added, at first, when evaluating people, I would listen to the words and then simply trust what, that the corresponding conduct would follow. Now when I evaluate people, I listen to their words, but then closely observe their conduct. It is my experience with Zai Wow, whoa, sorry, that brought about this change. So in other words, you know, people can say they're going to do this, they can say they're going to do that, people can make promises all day long, but this is much more like what the pragmatists, you know, uh, talk about much, much later, you know, going into the uh, early 1800s and early 1900s, the idea that it doesn't matter what the words are. It doesn't matter what the ideas are. It only matters how it plays out in the real world. So a person can say, I'm going to change, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. But if they don't actually do those things, those words are completely meaningless. Uh... Xingang said, uh, what I do not wish others to do unto me, I also wish not to do unto others. Ah, the master said, that is something quite beyond you. Uh, in other words, he's kind of bringing him down a notch. He's, you know, his, his student is kind of making a brag that, you know, he's sort of uh, mastered what's called the negative golden rule. Don't do unto others what you don't want them to do to you. And, you know, he's kind of bringing him down a peg and saying, you're not to that level yet. Um, and again, this is something that, you know, might be seen as, uh, cruel, except for the fact that Confucius does it with himself as well. He also does not look at himself and say, I know it all. I'm perfect. I have all the answers. You know, he is always hard on himself and to really grow, to really become smarter, to really become a better person, you have to have a certain level of, uh, harshness on yourself. You can't over uh, glor glorify everything you do. You have to look at it with a critical eye and say, okay, this may be good, but how can this be better? And this is kind of what's underneath this, is this, uh, this whole book is basically about, you know, getting beyond what's on the surface, getting beyond just the few deeds on the surface and really digging in, because you really have to dig into something before you can understand it. Uh, let's see, he mentions other people, talking about being dutiful, yes, dutiful, but not necessarily means that he's good. Uh, towards the end of the book, you get them talking about their aspirations and what they want to do. Uh, Hanhui and Zulu were in attendance. The master said to them, why do you not speak to me of your aspirations? Zulu answered, I would like to be able to share my carts and horses clothing and fur with my friends and associates without feeling regret. Um, so, in other words, he would like to be generous without kind of regretting the fact that, eh, I don't really like to share. You know, he'd actually like to be someone who is generous, not just, you know, does generous things. Uh, he wants that to be more of the core of who he is. Uh, Yanhui answered, 
Uh, I would like to avoid being boastful about my own abilities or exaggerating my com uh, accomplishments. Uh, Zulu then answered, I would like to hear the master's aspirations. The master said, to bring comfort to the aged, to inspire trust in my friends, and to be cherished by the youth. So, you know, he says, you're asking us our aspirations. Well, what are yours? Um, and he gives them an answer. You know, he wants to basically live a life that helps other people. You know, that brings comfort, inspires trust, that uh, sort of acts as a beacon to young people. Uh, the master said, I should just give up. I have yet to meet someone who is able to perceive his own faults and then take himself to task inwardly. Uh, in other words, uh, you know, he sees all of these people around him and none of them have the ability to be self-critical. You know, and this is what he's trying to get at. It's like you can't just have the surface. You really have to dig. Uh, the master said, in any village of 10,000 households, there are surely those who are dutiful as dutiful and trustworthy as I am, but there is no one who matches my love for learning. So, you know, this is, this is another uh, point that he makes, and, you know, this love of learning, um, this is something he sees as very rare. Uh, and for the most part, he, he talks about it in other passages too, most people's love of learning is tied to accomplishment. They love to learn things if it's going to make them more money, if it's going to give them more prestige, uh, you know, if there's a tangible reward for it, then people are loving learning. Uh, but the loving of learning it he's talking about is more of just learning for the sake of learning, um, you know, learning to get a deeper understanding of everything and to be, uh, you know, thoroughly a better person uh, without thought to, is this going to make me money? And this is something that you can really see, unfortunately, in the modern era, even more so. You know, I used to teach college, and I would have a lot of people that, a lot of my students that when I asked them, you know, why are you in this, why are you in the major you're in? Just out of curiosity to see why they were into their major. And way too many of them said, because it makes a lot of money. And that is the absolute worst reason to go into any field. Uh, whether it's the medical field, whether it's, uh, you know, business, whether it's law, doesn't matter. If you're going into the field solely because of the amount of money you make, uh, you, you might make, uh, this is a mistake. Because if you don't actually enjoy what you're doing, if you don't have, actually have a passion for it, you may end up hating your life more than you realize. Because, yeah, you may get in, you may get the money, but... If you hate what you're doing most of your day, how rewarding is your life? And one of the things that people often find when they do get a lot of money is that it doesn't really mean what they thought it meant. You know, yes, having, you know, stability, having security is a good thing. That will make you happier. But having lots of money and, you know, lots of possessions, uh, generally at some point that stops making you happier. And so if the money and possessions aren't making you happier and what you're doing for a living aren't making you happy, then you're really, you know, wasting your life. And this is a lot of what, you know, is the thrust of this is like, you know, this sort of, you know, don't go into what you're doing for money or for fame. Go into what you're doing because you love it. You know, don't go into wisdom for money or fame. Go into wisdom for 
the love of wisdom itself. And he sees this as something very rare in other people. Um, in the next uh, book, book six, uh, Duke asks, who among your disciples might be said to love learning? Uh, Confucius answered, the one named Yan Hui who loved learning. Uh, he never misdirected uh, his answer. He never made the same mistake twice. Unfortunately, his allotted lifespan was short and he passed away. Now that he is gone, there is no one who really loved learning. At least I have yet to hear of, the, hear of one. So he has this sort of star pupil from the past who unfortunately passed away when he was young, um, didn't live a long life. And, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, he becomes an unrealistic ideal to live up to. Um, but this is also a an image that you see not only in, you know, Eastern traditions, but Western traditions all over, is this idea of the perfect youth who dies before their time. And they sort of become this, uh, this very high uh, point that everyone should aim for, uh, a high point that no one will ever really be able to achieve, but still something you should aim for. And this is, you know, one of the things about his, um, his philosophy is that it's, it's not about aiming for high things to get, you know, wealth or fame or anything like that. It's about aiming at high things to get understanding. What he considers the high things are understanding, not money and fame. Uh, when Yuan Si was uh, serving as a steward, he offered a salary of 900 millet, measures of millet, but he declined it. The master said, do not decline it. If you do not need it yourself, could you not use it to aid the households in your neighborhood? Now, this passage is often seen as kind of contrary to things that he talks about because he does talk about, you know, don't go after things just for the money. And then one of his students, when he turns down something just for the money, he says, well, you should have taken it. Uh, you could have done a lot of good things with that money. And one of the ways that this could be read is, again, you could look at it as, you know, this is him trying to kind of keep his student from becoming too full of himself. Uh, but you can also read this as um, don't be too rigid in your view of the world. You know, the rules about how to do things might not always apply in every situation. You have to look at each situation and say, just because I've always done a certain thing this way or believe I should do it this way, circumstances might be different in a different case where another time I might need to do it a different way or make a different choice. And this is kind of a warning against being too rigid. And this is one of the things that philosophies uh, can tend to become, is once they start setting up maxims, once they start setting up, you know, the, the ideas of this is the rock-solid foundation, uh, then they become inflexible and can't see anything outside of that. And eventually, when you have this inflexibility, your philosophy or you know, theory or whatever will eventually run into a brick wall because you will start to find conditions where this doesn't work, conditions where this doesn't make sense. And so this is is often seen as kind of a warning of don't make your, you know, decisions based on rigid rules. Sometimes you need to, you know, step back and look at the whole picture, dig deeper into the situation see if that rigid rule you've been living by still does apply. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. 
but it's it's a warning against being too rigid. Uh, the master said, uh, uh, Yan Wei, for three months at a time, his heart did not stray from goodness. The rest could only sporadically maintain such a state. Uh, in other words, um, this is kind of a, a discussion about how rare it is for someone to be consistent. You know, somebody can do something good, be good for a day or an hour or a few minutes, but to, you know, set your heart, to set your mind on this, for prolonged periods of time, this is something that's difficult. It, it, he's not saying it's something you shouldn't do. He's not saying it's something you shouldn't try. On the contrary, this is something you should aspire for. And this goes into part of his, his measure of, you know, who, what is the good? Who is good? Uh, it's not somebody who does a good deed here or there, who does, uh, you know, competent, who is competent in this situation or that situation. It's someone who internalizes this and lives by these values and can live by them for prolonged periods of time. Because it's easy to be good for a day and then go back to doing whatever you're doing. Uh, the master said, what a worthy man was uh, Yan Hui, living in a narrow alley, subsisting on a basket of grain, a gourd full of water. Other people could not have borne such hardship, yet it never spoiled Hui's joy. What a worthy man was Hui. Um, you know, again, this is a sort of a, a warning against uh, putting everything you have into uh, material comforts. You know, the his, his student... Um, had the basics and with just the basics was happy you know had food to food to eat water to drink you know and a little bit of shelter when needed and that was all it took to be happy and this is a warning against you know basing your happiness on external things how much money you have how big your house is how fine your food is how fine your clothes are you know these are not the things that uh, lead to real happiness, and it goes back to the you know his call, him calling the other student a, a vessel. Um, you know you don't want to be just this shiny, superficial vessel. You want to have substance underneath. Um, another one of his students said, "Is not my is not that I do not delight in your way, master. It is simply that my strength is insufficient." Uh, the master said, "Someone whose strength is genuinely insufficient." collapses somewhere along the way. As for you, you deliberately draw the line. And so this is, you know, again, a warning against uh, a behavior. It's a warning against quitting before you even try. You know, if you're going to try something, if you think something is worthy, then you put yourself into it and you might fail. Uh, that's not necessarily your fault. Your strength wasn't, um, you know, sufficient to do what you wanted to do. But at least you put yourself into it. At least you tried. If you look at something and say, that's too hard for me, I can't do it. You know, you've quit before you've even given it a try. And this is something he sees as, you know, disgraceful. This is not behavior you should embrace. You know, if you believe something is the right thing to do or the right way to go, you should do it. You should go that way. Um, you shouldn't say, no, nah, too hard, can't do it, and just walk away from it. Uh, because this is self-limiting and, uh, you know, a lot of even business, uh, you know, uh, motivational speakers in business will talk about this. This is kind of like uh, what I've heard referred to as training fleas. You know, if you put fleas in a container with a lid on it, um, they will only jump 
until they hit the top. And then after a while of jumping and hitting the top, they'll stop trying to jump higher than that. And then when you take the top off, they won't jump out because they'll be trained to only jump so high. Um, this is kind of what he's talking about. If you set this artificial box on yourself and say, oh, I can't do it, I'm not even going to try, you know, you've, you've become like the trained flea. You're like, oh, I can't really do that. Even though, you know, if you remove that block and try, you may actually be able to do it. Um, let's see. Uh, the master said to Zizia, be a gentlemanly rude, don't, uh, do not be a petty rude. In other words, um, be someone who, and, and he has very specific um, meanings when he talks about a gentleman. Uh, a gentleman is not someone who has the trappings of a gentleman. It's not someone who has the fine dress and the, you know, the perfect manners and, and uh, that is not necessarily the gentleman. Uh, the gentleman is someone who lives the values, whether they have fine dress or whether they have rags, whether they have a lot of money or whether they have none. Um, they, they still live by the values they believe. Uh, the petty one is the one who, you know, only uh, lives by the values uh, when it's convenient, when it's prosperous to do so. Uh, the master said, when native substance overwhelms cultural refinement, the result is a crude rustic. Uh, when cultural refinement overwhelms native substance, the result is a foppish pe pedant. Um, only when culture and native substance are perfectly mixed and balanced do you have a gentleman. So he kind of gives a little bit of a of what a gentleman is. So when native substance overwhelms cultural refinement, um, in other words, when you're too uh, uh, too close to your base drives, too close to your primal urges, um, uh, and it overwhelms the cultural refinement, it overwhelms the you know, the, the behaviors, the rituals you're supposed to go through in society, um, what you get is crudity. Uh, you get someone who just runs around flaunting the rules, doing what they want, um, you know, not, not someone who is someone anyone should aspire to. Uh, then he says, when cultural refinement overwhelms native substance, the result is a uh, foppish uh, pedant. Okay, in this, when you've become so overly refined that you've basically killed everything that's natural about yourself, you become sort of this showy, uh, you know, uh, uh, flashy person who really has no value and no substance. Uh, they're just a show-off. They're just a, a braggart. Um, they, they don't have anything genuine to offer. Only when culture and native substance are perfectly mixed and balanced do you have a gentleman. So there's there's a, a lot of ideas in Eastern philosophy about the balance of opposites. So you have your natural inclinations and your cultural refinements and when you can live with those in balance so that both of them are taken care of, you know, this is this is what he calls the nature of a gentleman. You know, so you have to have that balance. You can't be too far one way or the other. Uh, if you are, the result is, you know, chaos. And you see this also in Taoism. You see this in, 
you know, you see this in a lot of other philosophies that come later as well. This idea of, you know, life is like a pendulum between two points, you know, and if you swing too far to one point or the other, everything is going to be out of balance. Things aren't going to work. It's going to be a catastrophe. It's when you hit that good spot in the center where you balance both of those two opposites that, you know, things will go well, things will be successful. Um, let's see. Uh, the master said, working to ensure uh, social harmony among the common people, respecting the ghosts and spirits while keeping them at distance, this might be called wisdom. Uh, then asked about goodness. The master said, one who is good sees his first priority, the hardship of self-cultivation, and only after thinks about the result of the war rewards. Yes, this is what might be called goodness. Okay, so he kind of draws a distinction between uh, wisdom and goodness. Uh, and it really boils down to wisdom being the ability to um, lead, the ability to, it's, it's much more of an active trait. Uh, wisdom is the ability to ensure social harmony, uh, respect the, the culture and the tradition, um, while not being overwhelmed by them. I mean, that's what he means by keeping them at a distance. In other words, not... You have the cultural traditions, you respect those, but you don't become so overwhelmed by them that you can't uh, think beyond them, that everything just becomes uh, by the, you know, by the numbers and routine and you kind of just go on autopilot. So it's, it's, a, it's an active balancing act is what he talks about with wisdom. And it has to do with being able to lead, uh, lead actively. Goodness, on the other hand, is someone who is good puts all of their attention on themselves, and not in a selfish way, but in a way of self-improvement. You know, you are constantly, this is a flaw, I need to work on this flaw, this is a strength, I need to build on this strength, and I need to live these, you know, these good things and, and, and be an example. So goodness is more it's it's more passive in that you're not actively trying to control other people but it's active in the fact that you're working on yourself and by working on yourself by improving yourself you basically set a good example and this is one of the ideas of lead by example and this is a big part of his wisdom is that you know ruling isn't necessarily from above you know if you are you know it, you know advancing yourself, if you are improving yourself uh, and living by the things you're doing, uh, the people around you will just start seeing what you're doing and, and naturally just follow you. They'll say, you know, oh, I want that for me too, so I'm going to start doing these things. Uh, the wise take joys in, in rivers while the good take joy in mountains. The wise are active while the good are still. The wise are joyful while the good are long-lived. Um, you know, this, again, this is, you know, which way do you want to go? Yes, there's a lot of happiness in the wisdom, you know, the wise and in, in like living in the movement and, and, and living in the activity of the world. Um, but that joy is short lived because sooner or later it burns you out. Circumstances overwhelm you, you kind of, uh, get pushed out. Uh, whereas goodness, um, you just kind of move with the flow of life 
while still like improving yourself, improving your path, and you're kind of playing the longer game. You, you're living the longer, calm life. Uh, you're not letting the outside world whirl you around. So there's not as much you know joy in it, um, but there's a more peaceful and longer life with it. Uh, let's see. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because I don't want to do every single part of this book. Um, let's see. If, if there were one who was able to bestow much upon the common people and bring uh, succor to the multitudes, uh, what, would make it, what would you make of him? Uh, could such a person be called good? The master said, why stop at good? Such a person should surely be called a sage. Even someone like Yao or Shun would find such a task daunting. Um, in other words, like if there was someone who was able to combine uh, all of these traits, um, they would be kind of sort of like an ideal perfection. And this is something beyond most people. And, and this is, you know, something that if it happens would be wonderful, but um, this is something that would be exceedingly rare. Uh, book seven, he kind of talks about his philosophy. Uh, and he starts out by saying, I transmit rather than innovate. I trust and love in the ancient ways. Um, I might thus humbly compare myself to old Peng. Um, Confucius doesn't see himself as creating a new way of doing things. You know, when you compare him with Plato, Plato sees the republic that he's building as, I'm building something that never existed, I'm innovating, I'm making something new. Uh, Confucius is more conservative. He's looking back into the past and saying, what were the things about the past that really worked? And let's study the past to get a better idea of how we should be. And this is why he talks about he's a transmitter rather than an innovator, because he spends his time studying the old ways, studying the old traditions, studying the old ideas, and then he tries to kind of transmit them into the present, into his present time. Um, again, the opposite of Plato. So Confucianism, Confucianism is very conservative. It tends to want to um, look to the best parts of the past and keep those parts alive. Whereas things like Platonism tend to, okay, let's just wipe the whole thing away. Let's start from the, the ground and let's build something you know, from the ground up that's perfect, because what's been in existence in the past has never been any good. Um, in, in some ways, you know, Confucius can be seen as someone who uh, might be falling a little bit under the spell of the uh, golden age fallacy that, you know, everything was way better way back when. Uh, the master said, remaining silent and yet comprehending, learning and yet never becoming tired, encouraging others and never growing weary. These are the tasks uh, that present me with no difficulty. In other words, you know, he does very well. He's kind of outlaying, outlaying what his strengths are. You know, he's good at listening. He's good at understanding. He's good at, you know, learning without getting fatigued. He's good at transmitting what he's learned. Um, then he goes into his fears what he's, he feels he's not as good at, what he feels he might fail at. Uh, the master said that I fail to cultivate virtue, that I fail to inquire more deeply into that which I have learned, 
that upon hearing what is right, I remain unable to move myself to do it, and that I prove unable to reform when I have done something wrong. Such potential failings are a source of constant worry to me. So again, he you know, approaches this with humility. He doesn't see himself as, I'm the perfect man. He, he really tries to lay out, you know, these are my strengths, excuse me, these are my strengths, these are my weaknesses. Um, and this is something that, um, you know, everyone should do. You know, you should really take a good look at yourself and say, these are the things that I am, um, I am really good at. Uh, these are my strengths. And then equally look at, and yeah, these are the things that do trip me up or have a potential of tripping me up and I really need to be on my guard about these things. But you have to have an honest appraisal of yourself uh, in order to really start to have a successful life. And by successful, I don't necessarily, you know, I, I'm going along with Confucius in this, and successful doesn't necessarily mean you make a lot of money. Successful meaning you become the person you can be. Um, you, you become the best version of yourself. And in order to do that, you really have to look at yourself. And again, this is another, you know, I keep making comparisons back and forth with, uh, you know, the uh, Confucius and the ancient Greeks. But when you look at philosophy, whether you're talking about Eastern or Western, you really start digging into it. You start to find a lot of connections. Yes, you find a lot of differences, but you also find a lot of connections. You know, what was the command of Socrates? Know thyself. You know, what is the command of Confucius here? Know thyself. Confucius, again, much earlier than Socrates. Uh, the master said, how seriously I have declined. It has been so long since I last dreamed of meeting the Duke of Zhao. Uh, in this, he's kind of... Uh, reprimanding himself because he's, you know, he feels that if you're putting everything into, you know, thinking about the right things and studying the right things and, and you know, doing the right rituals, that this should even spill into your dreams, that you should even be doing this stuff in your dreams. And he talks about the fact that I haven't been dreaming about this stuff, so I must not be working hard enough. You know, again, he's not coming down from, I'm a, I'm a perfect man telling you these things. He's coming down and, you know, showing you things and saying, and don't worry because I'm failing at this stuff too, but I keep pushing at it. And so should you. Uh, the master said, I have never denied instruction to anyone of their own accord, offered up as little as a bundle of silk or a, a bit of cured meat. In other words, um, you know, he, he doesn't require people pay large amounts of money to become his students. He understands some people don't have a lot. And this also probably, you know, goes back to the fact that he had humble beginnings himself. So he's not going to turn somebody away because they can't pay him thousands of, you know, uh, pieces of gold or whatever. Uh, if they have a desire to learn and they, you know, make an offering of whatever they can afford he's going to accept them as students. But he does have some, you know, limits. He, he will allow everyone to come in and try, but um, that doesn't mean they get to stay necessarily. 
I will not open the door for a mind that is not already striving to understand, nor will I provide words to a tongue that is not already struggling to speak. If I hold up one corner of a problem and the student cannot come back to me with the other three, I will not attempt to instruct him again. So in other words, you can't just pay lip service to it and say, here's my money, teach me. You know, you have to really pour yourself into it. If you want to learn, then you need to be have that drive within yourself. And this is something that as a teacher I can I can attest to as being true. You can't force anyone to learn. You know, they can show up at your class, they can listen to the lecture, they can even do the homework more or less. Uh, but if they don't have a desire to learn, you can't teach them anything. Uh, they, they won't get anywhere. You know, that desire can't be taught. That desire has to be within the student. If the student has the desire to learn, then they can be taught. If the student does not have the desire to learn, then they cannot be taught. And, you know, this doesn't mean that somebody that cannot be taught could never be taught. There may be a point down the road where they do get that desire and can be taught. But if they don't have it at the moment they're you know, going into learning, it's a waste of time to even try to teach them. Uh, this uh, chapter also deals with some of the, you know, cultural values is when the master dined in the company of one who was in mourning, he never ate his fill. You know, this is traditional. If you're with someone who is mourning the loss of a loved one or, you know, you don't have, have a, you know, feast in front of them, you know, you, uh, you eat in moderation. Uh, the master said, if wealth were something worth pursuing, then I would pursue it, even if that meant serving as an officer holding a whip at the entrance of the marketplace. Since it is not worth pursuing, however, I prefer to follow that which I love. Um, this passage really reminds me of, uh, you know, Life Without Principle by uh, Henry David Thoreau, which obviously Thoreau is much, much later. He lived in the 1800s in the United States. But it's the same idea that Confucius has that Thoreau has later in his essay, that, you know, if money were something worth having, then he'd do whatever to get the money. It didn't matter what the job would be if that was the thing worth having. But since money is not worth it, then he's going to go with something that's closer to his heart. And in Life Without Principle, Thoreau said, you know, talks about the fact that you know, if all you're getting out of your labor is a paycheck, you're being robbed. You, know, you should do what you love and you know, get your living by loving, basically, is what Thoreau says. If you you know, if you do what you love, eventually the money part will come along uh, if needed. But um, if, if you're just doing things to get a paycheck, to gather wealth, you know, you're wasting your time, you're wasting your employer's time, you're not going to do it well. And so this is a similar idea uh, that, uh, you know, between these two thinkers. Um the master said, eating plain food and drinking water, having only your arm bent as a pillow. Certainly there is joy to be found in this. Wealth and eminence attained improperly concern me no more than the floating clouds. So, you know, this is again uh, kind of a call for a, a simpler life because, uh, you know, when you are pursuing wealth, when that's all that matters to you, uh, you're really, 
living a very shallow existence. You're really living a very meaningless existence. And if you can't enjoy just the fact that you have something to eat and something to drink and a place to lay your head, um, you know, if you can't enjoy those basics, then all of that other stuff is not going to be an enjoyment either. Um, it's not going to be of any value. It's not going to be of any importance to you. Uh, let's see. I'm skipping through some of these sections. Uh, the master said, I am not someone who was born with knowledge. I simply love antiquity and diligently look there for knowledge. So this goes back to what he said earlier, that he's not, you know, an innovator. He's a conveyor. He looks to the wisdom of the ages. He looks to the wisdom of the old days and tries to bring that back. And this is a lot of what we saw in Europe in the Renaissance. That's what the Renaissance was. It was a, a rediscovery of the, the Greek and the Roman uh, classics of philosophy and science and literature. And, you know, it, it wasn't the Europeans, uh, you know, in, in England and in Italy, you know, rewriting these things or inventing these things. It was a rebirth of that learning that had been lost. Um, so this is a tradition you see over and over again, the idea of going back and looking back to the good old days when things were better and trying to grab, you know, what were some of the gems that made that world better, that made life better. Now, unfortunately, when you really look at things, you start to realize that this is something that uh, is, is something that is limited uh, you can never completely cre recreate the good old days because the conditions are not the same. Um, but what you can take are some of the ideas that work, that worked back then, and see if they apply to today, to see if they can still work today. Uh, let's see. The master said, when talking to two other people, I will always find a teacher among them. I focus on those who are good and seek to emulate them. And I focus on those who are bad in order to be reminded of what needs to be changed in myself. And this is something that I definitely agree with and definitely believe, is that everyone on the planet can teach you something. The smartest person, the dumbest person, and everyone in between. Uh, even the dumbest person on the planet can teach you things, even if it's what not to do and how not to act. You know, when you see someone acting poorly... Um, internalize that as a message. Say, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to make the mistakes I'm seeing this person make. And, and that's what he's talking about. Whenever he sees two people, he finds a teacher. Um, you know, people who are successful, people who are doing things right, emulate them. Do some of the things they do, and that will, you know, improve you. Uh, people that are doing things the wrong way, see what they're doing wrong, and make sure you are not doing those same things wrong. You know, a lot of times people can criticize someone else and say, oh, this person does this or this person does that. And it never really sinks into them that, yeah, you're doing the same thing also, just in slightly different ways. So, you know, again, this is a, always a call with Confucius to not just look at the surface of things, that everything, once you look beyond the surface, can teach you. Everything can bring you uh, wisdom and bring you to goodness. Uh, the master said, no doubt there are those who try to innovate without acquiring knowledge, but this is 
a fault that I do not possess. I listen widely, and then I pick out which is excellent in order to follow it. I see many things, and, I re and then remember them. This constitutes a second-best sort of knowledge. So again, this is a little bit of humility on his part. He's like, I don't invent great systems. I didn't come up with great ideas on my own. I, you know, I'm not making this stuff up. I'm not creating this stuff. I'm, I'm looking at what worked. I listen carefully. I, I observe. And, you know, I pull different good ideas from different people. And really, you know, this is a good lesson for anyone who wants to study any field, whether it's philosophy or any other field, is, you know, look to the wisdom of the other philosophers, the other thinkers, the other historians, the other whatever, and, you know, really take to heart the bits of wisdom they have, the things that they bring out that work. Um, and know that everyone you, you know, no matter how great uh, a philosopher or a thinker is, I've never read one that I agreed with 100%. I always felt, yeah, these are pretty good ideas this person has. These are great ideas. I don't know what they were thinking with these ideas over here because those were terrible. So this is kind of what he's talking about. He's what he does, what he's good at. He isn't creating something new. He's sort of picking up the pieces of the old and putting them together. Um, and if you remember back to, I believe it was season two, towards the beginning of season two, when we talked about the modernist, it may have been season one, um, you know, the modernists saw themselves as living in a broken world. The, the modernist literary writers in the British and American and, you know, uh, other European traditions. And so what they were trying to do is take the pieces of that broken world and see which fragments they could put together and recreate a world that made sense. And this is kind of what he's talking about. Again, much, much earlier, though. Um, the master said, is goodness really so far away? If I simply desire goodness, I will find that it is already here. Uh, in other words, you don't necessarily have to look far away to find things. Um, look into your daily life. You know, we're often, especially in the modern era, swept into everything global and, and, you know, running all over the world looking for things. And that's a good thing to do, to, you know, to gather wisdom and, and knowledge from around the world. But you can't neglect there's wisdom and good things right in front of you as well, right in your daily life. Uh, okay. There is no one who is my equal when it comes to cultural refinement, but as for actually becoming a gentleman in practice, this is something that I have not yet been able to achieve. So in other words, he's, again, taking stock of himself. He admits that he really understands what it is to be culturally refined, to be a gentleman. But he also admits that I don't always live up to that, that I fail sometimes. Uh, the master said, how could I lay claim to either sageliness or goodness? Uh, what can be said about me is no more than this. I work at it without growing tired, encourage others without growing weary. So in other words, you know, I, I, I'm not perfect, but I at least keep pushing forward. That's, that's the best thing you can say about me. Um, and let's see. The master was seriously ill. Zulu asked permission to offer a prayer. The master said, is such a thing done? Uh, this is the eulogy. Uh, we pray for you above and below to the spirits of heaven and earth. The master said, in that case, I have already been offering up my prayers for some time now. So, you know, the, they, he's not feeling well. His, his 
followers want to pray for him. And he's like, do you really, you know, is this something people really do pray for you? They said, yeah, we offer up, you know, our prayers to the above and below. And he says, well, he's basically saying, well, I live my life in a way that does that already. So we don't need to do that. I'm already, you know, looking to the higher things and also looking at what's right here in front of me. Uh, the master said, the gentleman is self-possessed and relaxed while the petty man is perpetually full of worry. And a lot of this has to do with the gentleman is someone who is self-fulfilled, uh, if you can think of it that way. You know, the gentleman is someone who has really looked within himself, uh, you know, made improvements, worked on the faults, and their measure of themselves comes from themselves. Uh, the man who is petty is someone who is always looking to the outside, for people on the outside to give you validation. This is one of the things I say is the difference between somebody who has a truly big ego and someone who people think is someone with a truly big ego. Someone with a truly big ego is someone secure in themselves. They, they do their own thing. They're not threatened by other people's success. In fact, they're happy for other people when they're successful. Um, you know, the, the person who has a truly big ego is constantly improving themselves and also looking to, you know, if somebody reaches out a hand and wants me to help them, I'll, I'll be happy to help them as well. Uh, so it's, it's a much more grounded sense. It's, it's what your ego should be. Um, you should be self-confident without being arrogant. You should be, you know, okay, these are my strengths, these are my weaknesses, and I'm going to work on both of these and make them better. And other people being happy, other people being successful doesn't take away from what I'm doing. I'm still doing my thing. The people who most people think have a big ego are the flashy ones, the ones that need constant validation from the outside. And when you need constant validation from the outside, that means inside you feel pretty empty, pretty shallow and hollow. So this is kind of what he's talking about. The true gentleman is someone who doesn't need that. The, the people that pretend to be gentlemen are the ones he's calling the petty. Uh, book eight. The master said, if you are respectful but lack ritual, you will become exasperating. If you are careful but lack ritual, you will become timid. If you are courageous but lack ritual, you will become unruly. If you are upright but lack ritual, you will become inflexible. Okay, so let's go through this. Uh, if you are respectful but lack ritual, and by ritual he means sort of the uh, behaviors that are correct. Um, and it, 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 it's not necessarily ritual in the religious sense, sense as we talked about in the last time. It's doing things the proper way, the proper way of washing, the proper way of eating, the proper way of preparing food. Like when you get yourself used to doing things the proper way, that's the ritual. Um, but uh, if you're respectful but lack ritual, you know, you, you, you're kind of like in awe of everything else, but you don't have the ability to keep yourself consistent, to keep yourself doing things the way you should and stay on track. Um, you'll become exasperating. In other words, people are going to get frustrated with you because you're always going to be you know, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm part of the team, I'm going, I'm going along with this, and yet you're just messing everything up. 
Uh, if you are careful but you like ritual, you will become timid. In other words, um, if, you, if you're careful and trying to do things right, but you don't really know the right way to do things, you're going to become shy, you're going to become timid, you're not going to be able to function very well because you are not going to have the knowledge you need uh, to be successful. Uh, if you are courageous but lack ritual, you will become unruly. In other words, if you're led by your passions, if you're not afraid of anything, if you just charge into everything, uh, you're going to be unruly and become a you know destructive force for yourself and for others. Uh, let's see. Uh, and if you are upright but lack ritual, you will become inflexible. In other words, if you are just rigid, um, you're not going to be... Uh, you know, you're not going to be able to function very well. You're going to uh, kind of be out of, uh, out of touch with everything, out of touch with life. Uh, the master said, find your inspiration in the odes, take your place through ritual, achieve perfection in music. So, you know, he kind of gives some of the old guides that he, uh, he used for perfecting himself. Um, the, mas the, the master said, the common people can be made to follow it, but they cannot be made to understand it. And this is one of the things where it's slightly a little bit elitist. He's like, everybody can kind of follow the rules and do the things the way they're supposed to, but only the exceptional people can understand why they're doing it and, and understand the full depth of it. Um, the common people, though, need that guide. You know, if the common people don't have that guidance, if they don't have the ritual, if they're not following the ritual, basically you have a society that collapses in chaos. Everybody is going their own way, doing their own thing. Um, it is not easy to find someone who is able to learn, even for the space of three years, without a thought given to official salary. And this is definitely something that I see as very much a modern problem still is that you know when you study something and you tell someone you're studying a particular field unless they can picture how you're going to make a living out of that they're like well, what can you make with that you know this is one of the arguments thrown against studying philosophy or literature what can you make with that you know how much money can you get out of that um and if your only thought is how much money you're getting out of it then again you're probably in the wrong field, going the wrong direction, probably going to hate what you're doing because if you're only doing it for the money, as we talked about earlier in this episode, you're going to be very unhappy and disappointed. And this is kind of another warning against that. It's like, you know, do what you love, go after what you love without thinking about how am I going to make a living at this? Uh, and he talks about somebody being able to do that for even three years is very rare. You know, someone being able to say, this is what I like to study, this is what I want to know, this is what I want to understand. Um, and if they don't have that ability to put the money aside, then they won't be able to uh, actually follow through with it. Okay, uh, I am going to end this episode. Uh, I had planned on going further, but I will have to do so in another episode. Um, again, this uh, this podcast keeps me to a 60-minute time limit, 
and I am approaching that 60-minute time limit. So we will get more into the Analex next time, uh, and then the time after next, we are going to jump over to um, actually talking about uh, the Odes, some of the uh, ancient Chinese Confucian poetry. Uh, so that will be the episode after next. But we're going to do one more episode on Confucius, and then we're going to switch over to the world of literature. I hope all of you are doing well, and I hope all of you are staying safe. Have a good day.